The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. You're watching Scorebox. Let's get into your headlines this Friday morning. Wall Street posts its best day since 2020, with the Dow surging over 1,000 points on signs inflation may have peaked. The CEO of Goldman Sachs telling CNBC the data vindicates the Fed's approach. Today's print certainly is, is a you know, positive sign in the journey that the economic tightening that the Fed's been exercising is starting to have an impact. The jump into equities sends yields sharply lower while the dollar sinks in its worst day since 2009. Billionaire investor Carl Icahn tells CNBC the stock market rally is still just a blip. A rally like this is, of course, very uh, dramatic, to say the least, very dramatic. But you have them all the time in a bear market, and I still think we're in a bear market. Uh, China adjusting its COVID controls, cutting the quarantine period for close contacts and easing restrictions for inbound travelers, as Beijing looks to minimize the amount of people affected by the measures. Plus, the White House announces that President Biden will hold his first face-to-face meeting with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping next week with the aim of improving relations between the two global superpowers. And FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried courts investors reportedly seeking more than $9 billion to rescue the crypto exchange. SEC Chairman Gary Gensler tells CNBC the sector is failing to comply with clear rules. This is a field that's significantly non-compliant, but it is, it's got regulation and those regulations are often very clear. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, Karen. How are you? Oh, very H- how are the family celebrations? Oh, very good. My Fantas- eight-year-old is now uh, eight. Oh, how time flies. <laughs> exactly. My goodness me. How are you, Jeffrey? Uh, not too bad. My oldest is uh, a little bit older than that, <laughs> but hopefully off the books soon. Yeah. If you're watching Georgie, apologies. And my oldest yeah. is completely off the books and a bit older than that, so that's very good news. Although I do have two ones which are still not off the books. There you go. That's the family news. The other news is that, um, well, we were kind of right. And I hate to say it, no, I don't really. We were right, weren't we? Uh, and it was, you'll notice there was a commentary in the show yesterday while you were enjoying your family celebration, champagne with your eight-year-old. She should really lay off that, though. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is uh, that, that we, we thought, didn't we? And it was not sophisticated. Sometimes these markets are so nuanced and sophisticated, and it's about the algorithms, and it's about the subtle hedge fund activity, and about the block trades. Yesterday was about a percentage point, a tiny little bit of percentage point different. And we said that there could be tension. You saw our Michael Howell interview, I know you did, that because of two things, the illiquidity in the market and the absolute desperation and hope to see a lower inflation print, that there could be outsized moves in the market on the back of one piece of data. Mary Daly put it, put it beautifully as well. She's saying, look, it was good news, but one month does not uh, make victory. And I think that's it. The market, though, was so desperate coming into this and so illiquid coming into this that actually it wasn't nuanced, it wasn't subtle, it wasn't complex, it was brutal. 
for those people who have a perfectly understandable view of the broader economy, have a perfectly understandable view about where we are in terms of the historical relationship with the earnings recession and the, and the grim outlook for many corporates. So this was brutal. I'll just do it very quickly and then we'll get to my colleagues. 1,200 points up for the Dow. 207 points, 5.5 percent up for the S&P, and the Nasdaq up 7.4 percent. There was nothing subtle. There was no nuance. There was no complexity. It was a better inflation print, and we were off to the races. And let's move on and take a look at some of the other areas of the market. Technology names, of course, that uh, Nasdaq move that we saw. Don't forget a lot of investors concerned about where we end up on rates, the terminal rate, and whether we stay around that terminal level. That's the backdrop for the big technology names. But uh, the uh, change that we saw in the inflation level, certainly enough to unlock very big gains for this sector. And don't forget, it wasn't long ago that some of these names were punished also on an intraday basis. Uh, Meta, when it came out with numbers, was down a fairly mighty 25%. So the intraday rally of 10% in that context, we have seen very big swings to the downside. So on the back, side, back end of this, we had 10% to the upside. So it has still been a volatile uh, trading period, I think, for a lot of these areas of the market. When it comes to Meta, this is the big name tech stock that is really out of kilter with the rest of the other plays. It is still down 66% year to date versus, say, what you've got on Microsoft down uh, the likes of uh, 27%, Apple 17 So uh, the gains that we had across the sector, very strong, but keep in mind just how far we've traveled and the, the red ink we're still sitting on for this sector. The ARK Innovation Fund, as we take a look at Tesla and other big momentum plays in the sector that 7% that Tesla had, the ARK Innovation Fund bounced 14%. So for Cathy Wood and co, uh, certainly big moves to the upside and welcome, no doubt, given how much pain we've sustained over the course of this year, the falls at the start that just really continued over the course of the trading year uh, to the point where some of the lows we're again sitting on in the month of November. It is a push higher from a very low base at this stage. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because we got this very knee-jerk response, as you were pointing out, Steve, you know, that the market took the slightly weaker number and it got very excited about that. And my question at this moment is, is there more to come or is this a short-term phenomena? Let's have a quick look at the uh, Treasuries here. Worth bearing in mind that it is Veterans Day, so there will be an absence of real Treasury market activity today. But the fact that we got that big move, I think, tells you that the Treasury market was the wrong side of this inflation print. And so we've had a a very large move. Uh, The yields coming down on the 10-year, which is, is, is of course the uh, duration that we always look incredibly closely at. But in real-world terms, if you think about the mortgage rate, the mortgage rate out to the 30-year now slipping down below 7%, which will be incredibly important for all those homeowners or prospective homeowners who are thinking about the cost of funding. And the reason I asked the question as to what comes next from here on in is there was a terrific interview on halftime report with Jeremy Siegel. Now, Jeremy Siegel's a Wharton professor. Um, he's been constantly arguing that the Fed is overestimating the level of inflation in the United States, specifically when it comes to shelter. So that's the cost of housing and the rental cost of housing. And his argument is that the Fed's data operates with a lag and they should actually be looking at actual prices because actual prices are now running negative 
negative in terms of the, the adjustment that we're seeing. So his argument is if the Fed was actually using the actual numbers and not the lagging numbers, we would have had a negative core print. Wow. Yeah. Would we have done 1,000 points? <clears throat> would we have done 2,000 points if we'd actually had a negative print on core? You can't imagine, can you? Look, he got a bit of pushback on that. People said the, the figures are the figures. The Fed works with the data that it's comfortable with, with the PC deflator and so forth. It is not going to use that information. But his argument is the Fed will have to adjust to this as this information starts to feed into its own uh, data indices. Now let's have a look at the crosses because I, I think as much as this is a huge story, mm. um, the, the question of where we go on um, stocks and where we go on treasuries, obviously the interest rate curve is very instructive for what kind of economic outlook we have. Are we going to have a recession? Are we going to have an inversion that points to a slowdown in growth? As, as important for the rest of the world as all of that is what the dollar sits at and yesterday was again one of those sessions where we got a broad pushback against the greenback and it took the foot off the throat of a number of economies around the world and of course it wasn't only then the u.s equity market that got the bounce and the um, u.s treasury market that got the the, um, the selling it was uh, the same thing that played through other international asset classes and I'm um, just looking at where we are at the moment you can see there's a little bit of momentum isn't there against the dollar at the moment with both the euro the pound sterling uh, and as we look at the uh, dollar yen well the yen quite frankly driven by the fact that the Bank of Japan has got a completely different mentality and attitude towards interest rates at the moment let's get to Octavio Morenzi for some comment on what we saw yesterday he is the CEO of Opiumass Octavio I just wonder if you could reflect on the comments that we had from Jeremy Siegel where he was arguing actually the Fed needs to play catch-up on what the real cost of shelter is in the United States and he thinks they're getting the numbers wrong well, I understand his argument. I'm, I'm not sure about the numbers that he's actually drawing on. I mean, the basic argument is the Fed has a big lag built into it because they're looking at what people are actually spending on sh on shelter currently in the form of rents. And typically people are tied into a one-year contract. And so there's a lag that before you actually see the real numbers then. So they should be conceivably looking at asking rents or the current rents or recent contract signings, but they don't do that. So the way those numbers get calculated, there is a lag built into it. Now, I think it's actually going in the opposite direction from that. We've actually seen the price of shelter and rents in the US have gone up quite substantially this year. Uh, they did peak a couple of months ago, but we saw we seem to have lost Octavio. You know what, we'll, we'll see if we can uh, reconnect with him at this point. Um, interesting, though. I mean, of course, he's absolutely right. You know, as much as Jeremy Siegel and those who argue that we are already seeing the whiff of uh, recession in the United States and in other economies, um, we have to deal with the data that the Fed deals with. We can't start making up our own lines of, uh, of analysis. Which takes us back to the strategy from here. Don't forget we've been in this world listening to the front-loading language from central banks, so move aggressively, move swiftly, and we get to a higher rate and that will do the trick. 
but the language has started to change now as we talk about this gradual increase as we've gone 75 now the market's pricing 50 basis points as the next move thought to be 25 after that potentially so are we still looking at the same playbook where we go aggressive start to taper off or do we just go aggressive and stay at this rate on the terminal level i think that's also quite interesting at this stage octavia let's bring you back in apologies we seem to have lost your line for a moment here but you were making a terrific point about what you think the real cost of shelter is at the moment yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know where we dropped off, but I was basically making the point that we'd seen rental prices in the US this year increase enormously, about 15%. And the Fed has an enormous lag built into how they actually calculate that and see that in, in the CPI numbers. Um, so, well, it's not the Fed, it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics that puts those, those numbers together. So that those numbers are going to carry on coming in with a lag into the CPI numbers and keep them high. And bear in mind, the cost of shelter is the biggest component in the CPI. It's about a third of the entire CPA is weighted towards the cost of shelter and rent or owner's equivalent rent, which is also based on rent, so basically rents. And those numbers are basically, I mean, it's a mathematical kind of trick, So, but we've seen those numbers peak now a few months ago, and so they are coming down, but there's still a lot of rent inflation in the market. We're still in double-digit territory at this stage in the most recent numbers there. So the idea that we've got a negative print on that, I think, is a bit overblown. We're, we're not seeing rents fall in the USA. It's far from it. They're still going up, and they're going up at double digits still, although that rate is coming down. But so that's going to keep boosting CPI for some time to come, given that the, the Fed has this lag in their calculations. So I don't see that number coming down substantially next time we see a CPI read substantially below 7.7%, which we saw this time. I expect it to carry on hovering around 8%. We'll, we're seeing a lot of buoyancy in those rental prices that will keep things up. Very interesting uh, comments, uh, Octavia. There. Good morning to you. Look, from my point of view, I, I, having been a student of markets for many decades, I think the market struggles to have more than one crisis at a time that it can contemplate, that it will put to the front of the queue of crises. And at the moment, of course, interest rates and inflation at the front. I can't help thinking, though, that once this, um, this beast has been slayed, the next crisis will be upon us. And I'm wondering if the market has actually started thinking about recession yet, including earnings recession as well. Do you think that's going to take the market by surprise if indeed the inflation dragon looks like it is on the way to be being slayed? Well, I think the, you're absolutely right. The market seems to be able to concentrate on one single issue at, at a time and nothing else to the detriment of anything else going on in the world. Um, I think we are seeing all sorts of bad news. And I think you're absolutely right to point out the market was absolutely desperate for some good news. Now, if you look at the poll of economists going into the CPI print, the average expectation was about 7.9%, and we got 7.7%. Now, to me, that's within the noise. I mean, I, I don't see that as being materially different from really what the forecast was and what the expectations were. So this seemed a bit sort of irrational exuberance at play here in terms of this enormous jump based on on marginally improved inflation numbers, but they don't that uh, that massively improved. I think there's a, a not so much of a surprise in terms of the earnings coming, but I think people have started to ignore basically the war in Ukraine and what's going to unfold there in the coming months. Now that is likely to heat up. The Russians have mobilized a fairly large army there and they look likely to have some sort of activity, some sort of action in the winter once things freeze and they can move their armor in there more effectively. And I think that's going to catch markets off guard quite substantially. People seem to be ignoring that entirely, almost have forgotten about what's going on in Ukraine or it's not really an issue anymore. People looking at earnings, they're looking at inflation numbers, they're looking at Bitcoin, things of that sort. But what's going on on the ground in Ukraine has been sort of largely ignored. So I think if there is a risk that people are ignoring something, it is that in Ukraine and that war heating up again as the Russians start to mobilize this very large army that they put into place there.
Octavio, um, we had the midterms, of course, this week, and the number one issue really uh, was inflation for a lot of people coming out to vote around the cost of living, the pressures that they were seeing. But one of the big takeaways is that um, many of the voters didn't think either Democrats or Republicans were well-placed to deal with inflation, that it was really someone else's job here. Delicious timing then that we get the inflation numbers. What happens from here, do you think, in terms of the politics and how many voters feel about inflation? Well, I think the politics was also a very negative point that was weighing on the markets because there's an absolute lack of clarity. We still don't actually know who's going to control Congress. We don't know what's going to happen in the House or what's going to happen in the Senate. It's not entirely clear. It's looking like the Republicans are going to get the House. The Senate is still up in the air, which is kind of remarkable that it takes this long to get election results in the US before these sort of mail and balance are counted. Uh, it can take days and weeks. So I think that was weighing on markets as well, basically saying there's some political uncertainty here. We don't know which way it's going. But I think I think what's really interesting in that is that, yes, the voters were saying inflation looks bad, but we're not really sure who to blame for it. And would the Republicans be better? I don't think that was entirely clear. I think this should have been an absolute wave in favour of the Republicans this round. Uh, people are very unhappy about how the economy is going and the Republicans should have done so much better, but yet they didn't. So I think voters are basically sort of a toss up. I mean, the voter was very much 50-50 between the Republicans and the Democrats. It was very, very close. So. I'm sorry, yes. I, I, I'm going to ask you one more question, um, and I'm so, I apologise for interrupting. Um, I disagree with only one thing you've said today, um, and that was it was irrational exuberance. Uh, because I've got a feeling, it, it wasn't necessarily an irrational exuberance, it's actually a vast amount of illiquidity in the market, and you know far more than I do about the market actions and the investment banks and what's going on there. So I, I hear what you're saying about irrational exuberance, and on another day I would agree with you, but is there a, a hint of the fact is the markets are so illiquid that any bit of paper, any block trade, any movement creates outsized results in the current market environment? Well, the markets are certainly less liquid than they were in the past. But this kind of enormous movement, I think, I don't think can tie back to a single block trade. I mean, if you're looking at the single stock or equity in a, a fairly illiquid stock, yes, you could see those kind of enormous movements based on a single trade. But here we're talking about everything. I mean, the entire market moved up. Uh, the dollar moved, gold moved, Bitcoin moved, everything was up. So it can't be tied back to uh, a, a single trade. Now, this was a fairly broad-based movement, an enormously broad-based movement in, in the markets yesterday in response to that. Um, I say it's irrational because I think underlying that idea is the uh, thought that the Fed is now going to pivot and is actually going to start to reduce interest rates and start injecting money back into the market. So they're going to give up their quantitative tightening and start quantitative easing again and prop up the markets. And I think that's underlying the thinking here. I, and I don't think that's a, about to happen. I don't think the Fed is going to basically put its foot off the brake anytime soon. They're going to carry on increasing interest rates, maybe at a more moderate pace. But inflation is far from being beaten. And so it's going to require higher interest rates going into the future as well. And I think the market is being, yes, a bit overly optimistic in terms of what the Fed can do in terms of reducing interest rates now. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I didn't necessarily mean a single block trade. I mean, a limited amount of trade would lead to an outsized reaction. But I, I take your point fully on board. Uh, but I think the market's got a, a reaction to your point about the pivot, uh, Octavio, and they've changed the definition of pivot now, haven't they? Bless them. Uh, they've changed it from actually cutting to uh, uh, raising at a slower pace. But we, we can agree to differ on all kinds of things. But basically, uh, I think we're in agreement about most things. Octavio, lovely to see you. Thank you for your comment today, sir. Octavio Marenzi, CEO of Opimas. And of course, the timing of the next uh, inflation print is delicious because it lands just before the next Fed meeting in December. Oh, that's nice. So that will put 
put them under a lot of pressure to get the call right, whether it's 25, 50 or 75. And and just on that Jeremy Siegel interview, if you want to catch up with what the Wharton professor had to say, it is available on CNBC.com and you can hear the critical part where he talks about why he differs with the Fed's data and why he thinks the, uh, the number is actually negative on core inflation. Uh, China is easing COVID restrictions even as case numbers hit new records in the capital. Beijing is reducing restrictions on close contacts as well as dropping a penalty on airlines for bringing in infected passengers. The quarantine period for inbound travellers is also being reduced from 10 to 8 days and pre-travel testing will be eased. China says it wants to minimise the number of people living under COVID curbs. The announcement comes as China reported more than 10,000 new cases, the highest since the height of the Shanghai outbreak in April. The current epicentre, Guangzhou, reported more than 2,000 new infections for the fourth day running. Let's get out to Emily, who can uh, update us, I think, on how the Asian markets are reacting to this news. And Emily, maybe you can help us understand just how significant these adjustments are. Thanks a lot, uh, Jeff. And Asian markets were already having a banner day, uh, seeing a jump after uh, China eases COVID curbs. And that was already after a strong day on Wall Street that spilled over into Asia with CPI data coming in cooler than expected. So Hong Kong is the leader in the Asian region. It gains of more than 7.5% or some 1,100 points. It is tech stocks that are leading the gains. Alibaba, Tencent and Meituan all seeing double-digit gains up more than 10%. We should also mention today Today that it is 11-11, November the 11th, Alibaba's single-day global shopping festival, but no, no fanfare this year with subdued sales expected. The China market's also gaining altitude as the National Health Commission adjusts the protocols for COVID prevention and control. We're also seeing yuan strengthen substantially against the greenback on the back of this. So what this means, quarantine for close contacts has now been cut to five days of centralized isolation and three days of home quarantine, down from seven and three currently. Inbound travelers now face two days less of quarantine, so that's eight down from an earlier 10. It's canceling the what's known as close circuit breakers. We'll also get confirmation now that from the White House that President Biden and President Xi will meet on Monday. That's ahead of the G20 leaders meeting in Bali. It'll be their first face-to-face meeting since Biden became president. Topics of discussion are expected to include Taiwan and human rights. Biden will also be meeting with Japan's Prime Minister and South Korea's president the day before on the sidelines of the ASEAN meetings in Cambodia. Over in Taiwan, the market's being supported by the 8% rally in the index heavyweight TSMC, and that follows a big jump in its October sales. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 hits a two-month high, with Tokyo Electron shares jumping 9%. And we are noting, of course, that U.S. dollars slide against the yen, a 4% plunge in the USD JPY overnight, but it has been firming up in the Asian session. And in South Korea, heavyweight cacao up 15% following the tech-driven rally on the NASDAQ. The won gaining as much as 3.5% against the U.S. dollar. So really a banner day across Asian markets, guys, and it is now further helped by the COVID curbs that are being relaxed in China. Uh, This is something that we have really been waiting for because they are operating in COVID zero. And it's quite uh, remarkable because this comes as the day that they have announced more than 10 thousand cases uh, but it looks like they're on the uh, look 
on the uh, road to easing some of their COVID curbs, as we've just heard from the National Health Commission. Back to you guys now. Terrific, Emily. Thank you so much for the report. Well, China's annual Singles Day shopping extravaganza peaks today, but with much less fanfare than many have become accustomed to. It comes amid weaker consumer sentiment and rising COVID numbers, as well as a crackdown on influencer marketing. Raymond Young is a chief economist for Greater China at ANZ and joins us now. Raymond, great to have you with us on the program. Look, look, I think there's a, there's a healthy debate going on among economists as to whether China's issues are supply side or demand-led. And increasingly, it feels like they're demand-led. But Chinese economists um, with some government backing are trying to present this as a supply-side challenge. What does your analysis tell you about how the economy is growing and whether this is a demand problem and not a supply problem? I think it's a combination of both. Um, of course, not because I'm an economist trying to give you two answers. Um, now, on the demand side, obviously, that we have seen a uh, lot of the government stimulus trying to support the economy, trying to cut the interest rate in order to boost the property market transaction um, has failed so far. Um, on the supply side, of course, we all know that this zero COVID policy disrupts supply chain and also disrupt people's mobility. So on consumption, it has been affected um, by this um, uh, by the whole zero COVID policy. Um, or, but my worry, of course, is the demand side more than the supply side. Uh, in fact, even um, um, with this uh, type of policy, um, some of the property supportive policy, um, it's failed to uh, help the property sales rebound. And most of the measures try to secure property construction so that the buyer can get the, either get the money back or to get the uh, their property back, you know, after they deposit some of the um, initial down payment. So uh, overall, I think the uh, uh, the biggest worry I have is whether there's any change in um, price expectation. If that's the case, then um, if China's eventually really come to a situation very similar to Japan's last decade, then uh, that's what obviously becomes a demand side problem, which means that any monetary policy easing will only push China into a liquidity trap rather than boosting demand and to sustain growth. Oh, that's that's fascinating. I mean, just just give us your read on the latest uh, move then on the COVID restrictions. Uh, w- would you say that the government? is actually being strong-armed into making these changes now as it has to react to the weaker data. Yes, uh, absolutely. If you look at the retail sales data that will be released next week, um, in, expressed in real terms, actually negative. Even the market consensus is looking at less than 1% normal no growth um, last month. And uh, with all different sorts of lockdown and the mobility is being tracked by a digital device, and the digital device uh, can change color anytime, um, people lack uh, sentiment to go out for shopping and dining. So um, I think they want to change this expectation. They really want to boost the economy again become, uh, be, before uh, it gets worse more uh, or get worse further. Um, so obviously the direction is to open up, but a number of cases, um, like yesterday in Chongqing, uh, more than 700 cases. Um, but at the same time, they also released this uh, document or at least some of the wording has changed in the latest announcement. Uh, it means that they would like to try the best to balance uh, between uh, COVID control versus the economy. Um, now, obviously, that's, uh, it has to be taken step by step, and uh, they like to see uh, what the reaction would be. For example, relaxing the border control, whether that will import more cases and becomes 
uh, a contagious uh, scenario to the domestic cases number. I think this is all they are watching um, uh, and, and try to have some test or pilot so that uh, they see whether there's any room, further room to ease further and more rapidly um, uh, next year uh, before the economy uh, gets worse. The uh, COVID restrictions clearly have had an impact on consumer sentiment to date, uh, denting those numbers. And as we wait for Singles Day's numbers to, to roll in uh, from here, what are we hearing in terms of the health of the Chinese consumer? Because in the West, we've been talking about a two-speed economy already, that inflation, cost of living pressures are hitting the lower demographic more so than those who earn much more money than the, the lower demographic. What are we seeing in China in terms of the disparity? Uh, obviously, it's two space, two space economy. Um, apparently, you know, on the manufacturing side, numbers not really that bad. You know, last month's got the industrial production. Uh, it's more than a six percent improvement um, over the last year, uh, same month. But at the same time, you know, the latest non-manufacturing PMI dropped by to below, you know, 15, 48. So uh, the service sector obviously is not doing very well, uh, especially in consumption and also public transaction as well. So all this, um, you know, point to uh, whether there is any room to, to relax people's and social mobility so that the domestic activities can pick up and uh, and the sentiment can be improved. Um, and more importantly, you mentioned about uh, inflation. Core inflation has been down to below, you know, to 1%. Um, and PPI has got to negative too. So China is actually running a very different scena- uh, scenario in terms of price. Uh, China is running into a deflationary spiral, whereas the rest of the world is inflation. So I think that they uh, would like to uh, prevent China to, from falling into a long-term persistent deflationary spiral uh, so that any form of economic policy would not work in those scenarios. There's been a lot of debate in the West after some of the strong measures we've had against big internet companies in China, all the fresh rules and restrictions, that uh, it's sort of an untouchable sector at this stage. But a lot of uh, other big uh, moneymakers and players around the Chinese market say don't write off the Chinese consumer at this point. But uh, we know in the mix that common prosperity, the messaging from uh, Beijing authorities has changed slightly in recent years. If you're still interested in the Chinese consumer, how do you play it from here? Uh, common prosperity, as, as you mentioned, um, I, I think is the um, headline policy. And within this policy, there's a lot of different uh, type of measures, including anti-competition, including uh, capping the salary and remuneration of uh, top executives uh, in financial sectors as well. So all this uh, can uh, tell you that the leadership uh, really came more about the income disparity and I care more about the distribution of economic benefit rather than maximizing the overall growth. Um, how does it affect consumption? Pretty obvious. A uh, lot of people, they don't really want to be seen, especially government official, to be seen as spending a lot of money in luxury goods. So uh, I, I believe this will have some uh, significant impact on the consumption uh, behavior uh, of the domestic economy. So um, uh, let's see, you know, the, how it goes. But overall, of course, that's... Uh, on, from a cyclical perspective, it's all uh, ultimately whether China consumption can come back will be hugely dependent on the uh, property outlook. Now, look, uh, if the uh, idea is to prevent the property price to go up too fast, then uh, don't expect China will abandon this uh, housing is for living for policy. Um, and then um, they will not be easily relaxed the uh, property curve in the first tier, top tier cities. 
Now, of course, we know that the situation of the property sector is, has been very difficult and they're willing to relax and support their construction. But uh, at the same time, uh, it's not a 100% turnaround of the uh, housing policy in China. Raymond, it's been a real pleasure catching up with you. Thanks so much for your views this morning. Raymond Young, Chief Economist for Greater China at ANZ. Still to come on the programme, Royal Vopac raises its core profit guidance for 2022. We're going to speak to the CEO, Dick Rochelle. That's up after the break. We'll see you in a moment. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. Wall Street posts its best day since 2020, with the Dow surging over 1,000 points on signs inflation may have peaked. The CEO of Goldman Sachs telling CNBC the data vindicates the Federal Reserve's approach. Today's print certainly is, is a you know, positive sign in the journey that the economic tightening that the Fed's been exercising is starting to have an impact. The jump into equities sends yields sharply lower while the dollar sinks in its worst day since 2009. Billionaire investor Carl Icahn telling CNBC the stock market surge is still just a blip. A rally like this is, of course, very uh, dramatic, to say the least, very dramatic. But you have them all the time in a bear market, and I still think we're in a bear market. China trimming its COVID controls, cutting the quarantine period for close contacts and easing restrictions for inbound travellers as Beijing looks to minimise the amount of people affected by the measures. SoftBank falls to a six-month net loss of more than $900 million after a series of bad bets from the Japanese investment giant. The CEO Masayoshi-san faces investors in about an hour's time. Markets jolted by cooling inflation. Uh, the headline number crossing yesterday at 7.7%, below an increase uh, seen around 8%. And uh, effectively, it is uh, the first time since January that uh, we've had a number below 8%. The uh, numbers are certainly well and truly received by the markets. You can see various quarters are rallying 7 plus percent on the NASDAQ, a very strong build for the tech sector, battered by the prospect that inflation was not getting under control and that more increases from the Fed would be necessary. So you can see. Uh, a sector that has uh, shown a lot of pain of late and particularly on the back of earnings season very much leading the charge higher with this risk on sweep five and a half percent on the S&P 500 and the Dow up 3.7 percent it uh, was interesting to see the somewhat change of fortunes because it has been the Dow that's been leading the major U.S. boards in recent weeks and uh, the Nasdaq lagging behind and now if we look over the course of the week 6.1 percent rally for the Nasdaq and uh, for the likes of the Dow tracking up four percent for the week so it was 
uh, very much uh, racing ahead for the Nasdaq in session yesterday. The Asian market's picking up on all of this green and those positive signals around inflation. You can see also in rally mode, it's the Hong Kong market in particular. Investors are revisiting uh, 1,100 plus points at this stage, but still very strong signals across the board. The market also closing uh, rules and regulations around COVID restrictions out of that market with some hopes uh, of some changes uh, from the authorities just to, to weaken uh, some of the uh, very stringent rules around quarantine and self-isolation. To the oil markets, uh, given on the risk on nature that we've been witnessing, we're bouncing higher too on these trades, 2% on WTI, Brent up uh, less than that amount. Interesting to note yesterday, Slim ranges, despite the gains you are seeing elsewhere across on major equity markets, uh, only 1.1%, for instance, on the Brent price and about half a percent on WTI. To the European markets and how we closed out in that context, we were also stronger. The DAX in play, 3.5% higher out of the core markets and across the periphery. It was the leading market, as you can see. The other one uh, that bounced strongly was uh, the FTSE MIB. Italian stocks are rallying more than 2.5%, Jeff. Karen, thank you. Let's pick up on some of these corporates then. SoftBank reporting a 129 billion yen net loss in the first half of the year, but swung to a quarterly profit for the first time in three quarters. The Japanese tech group saw a decline in its tech portfolio with losses at its key unit, the Vision Fund, totaling 1.4 trillion yen for the second quarter. Elsewhere, FTX needs to raise as much as $9.4 billion to stay afloat, according to Reuters. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of the crypto exchange, has reportedly discussed raising funds with several investors and figures within the crypto space. However, several existing backers have reportedly marked down their stakes in FTX to zero, making further cash injections from them unlikely. In a tweet, Bankman-Fried said he was doing all he can to raise funds, but that he couldn't make any promises at so, this so stage. he's back tweeting again, yeah? He is tweeting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Is he going to re-put out the deleted tweets? Uh, that I don't know. Because I think I'd imagine our regulatory friends belatedly will be looking at some of that. Well, they are, could, they are. Could, could we have a copy of the deleted tweets and, and the things you said about your liquid, liquidity situation? Well, I'm sure they can get them. Can't of they? course they can. They well, can walk in with a warrant and say, or even the screen grabs from everyone else who took, who, who didn't <laughs> right. let them get away. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, uh, FTX US, a sister company of the troubled crypto operator, is warning it could halt trading in coming days and is urging users looking to close positions to do. So immediately deposits have reportedly been halted, by, but withdrawals remain open. <laughs> Meanwhile, the securities regulator in the Bahamas has frozen the assets of FTX's digital markets unit, which is based in the country. Interesting company, interesting space. So listen to this one. Uh, Royal Vopac has uh, raised its full year core profit outlook, forecasting EBITDA of around 890 million euros for the year from a range of 830 to 850. The Dutch tank storage company says it benefited from supportive business conditions and currency gains, although the war in Ukraine and COVID measures in China continue to impact the market. Dick Rochelle is the CEO of Royal Fopac and joins us now. Dick, um, look, I'm not here as an apologist of your company or the industry or anything like that. 
But I don't understand why your shares are under quite so much pressure as they are this year. Because when I look at the space you're in, I look at the desperation in some quarters for more storage, for energy as well. I look at your free cash flow situation. And there's a figure we didn't mention earlier. Your cash flow has gone to 581 million from 108 million they, uh, from operating activities. Why do you think the market is, is, is treating you with such disdain almost with just a single digit PE? Well, good morning and, and thanks a lot for having me on the show. Um, <clears throat> well, we live in, in, in highly volatile and, and highly uncertain times. And uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with uh, very strong results that we've seen in, in the third quarter. Uh, what it demonstrates in, in our view in, in Volpac is the need uh, in this current time and environment for critical infrastructure and critical infrastructure to support security of supply and to support in the end the energy transition. And that is the type of services and the infrastructure that we as Volpac offer in many locations around the world. And it helped us to boost our results in, uh, in the third quarter and, and raise the outlook for the remainder of the year. But again, against a, a backdrop of, of highly volatile and uncertain situation that, that we all live in. Yeah, that is a really interesting answer, Dick, as well. And your comment about critical infrastructure, I think, is well made. Let me make a statement and see whether you agree or completely disagree. I think there is a stunning amount of hypocrisy in Europe, especially, about critical infrastructure. Yes, we all want it, but when it finally comes down to getting the permits, the regulation, the speed of planning, Europe is woeful compared to some of our Asian friends or our Middle Eastern friends and what have you. Is there an enormous... Um, I don't know, cognitive dissonance or actually hypocrisy going on in Europe amongst policymakers about building critical infrastructure? I think that I, I think what you see at this moment in time is that the market in general and also policymakers are realizing the importance of critical infrastructure and the importance of critical infrastructure for security of supply. If I tell you that... Um, the, the the levels of uh, security stock that are currently being built up in different places around the world as a result of government seeing the need for it, that's definitely being recognized at the moment. And if you look at the total supply chains that we as Vopak are serving, you see that they are moving from uh, an area where it was just in time and trying to do it as efficient as possible. You see now security of supply, building up redundancy in the systems and um, uh, preparing that infrastructure for a change towards the future, to a, a new lower carbon future. I think that's what you see. That's one part of my answer. The other part, I think you also see very good examples. You see good examples, for instance, in the Netherlands, where within six months, the Netherlands has been able to uh, develop an LNG import facility in the north of the country. Um, and that is critically needed. That was critically needed. It continues to be critically needed. And that went actually quite well. Uh, and you see that also the way LNG infrastructure to support increasing LNG imports into Western Europe, there's quite a bit of redundancy in those systems to de-bottleneck and actually facilitate more LNG imports already into the system in uh, in, in Western Europe. So I'm, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit less uh, pessimistic as uh, as the way you want to, to put it. And let's focus on what we have today, the role that we as Volpa can play in that. And, that's, and that, I think, is a very important role. Again, critical infrastructure at key locations. Dick, on that note, can I ask you about two words that jump out in the report today, refurbishing and repurposing, it feels as though you're subtly changing the portfolio to ensure that you have the right infrastructure. Just run us through some of those measures. Yeah, so so definitely, Karen, what, what we are doing, and this is a very good example of what we're doing in, in the port of LA, uh, Los Angeles, 
is we're taking uh, tanks that we're currently using, so infrastructure that we're currently using to support fossil fuel in the port of LA and to repurpose that into supporting sustainable aviation fuels to support biodiesel, uh, um, to support actually the demand in that local market. So there you see the physical transformation of our portfolio in a very natural way. Uh, but again, it comes back to having that critical infrastructure at the right location and, and then be in a position to actually go through that transformation, uh, what the new world uh, is demanding from us. And I think we're, we're, as a company, we're very well positioned. And this example in LA is, is in my view, a very good, uh, a very good showcase for that. Uh, Dick, just a final one from me, really. And it, it's about having the right storage in the right place at the right time. And it, it seems to me, you know, coming back to Steve's point about the share price, I think that that seems to be what the market is reflecting that they know that you are now having to pivot very quickly to figure out what is going to go in your storage containers and how that's going to fit in with the whole notion of the transition that we're experiencing. Um, Just perhaps help us understand here the transformation that's going on in the business and how you are moving to adapt to the shift in energy resources. Yeah, so... so Again, the the example I just gave on Los Angeles is one of the examples. I think it also shows, and in the release, we're clearly identifying that we uh, were also moving uh, into existing locations and in those existing locations, facilitating a move towards new energies. We're storing in six locations around the world ammonia. Um, we're uh, announcing today that we're also in talks and further discussions in the Netherlands, in Houston and in Singapore to expand those uh, ammonia import facilities that help us facilitate from grey ammonia towards blue to green ammonia. And that's the type of uh, a capability that we as Volpac uh, have. And, and, and I think with the existing network that we have around the term, around the world, the context that we have for the law of customers and partners, it puts us in a very good position to facilitate the transition that the world needs. And I, I think the pace of that is very much going to be determined by the pace of, of the market and our customers that are taking us there. But I think from a, from a base core infrastructure point of view, for, we're, we're very well positioned. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.